to Acts chapter 6. If you don't have Bibles with you, I encourage you to bring them regularly to church uh, when we meet together because we do always try and teach something from the Bible. I'm tempted to wave my Bible in the air and say, this is my Bible. <laughs> Go on then, come on. I'm sure you're all out of practice. Here we go. Those of you who have never done this with me in times past, thank you very much, George. You have all these iPads, you can wave your iPads as well. Okay, say after me, this is my Bible. I love it. It's the Word of God. And now I open my heart to receive your Word. And to do everything it says. Amen. There you are, you came back just for that. How about that? (laughs) You've been missing that, haven't you? Yes. Okay, Acts chapter 6 then. Uh, So we come to the story of Stephen. You know, one of the great things about teaching through the scriptures or through a book in the Bible is that you have to tackle the bits that you don't want to tackle. Uh, So a couple of weeks ago, Steve had to tackle the story of Ananias and Sapphira, uh, which I understand he did with consummate skill, uh, because I had a report from my own daughter who happened to be here at the time. Um, But who wants to preach on the story of of Ananias and Sapphira, you know, people dropping dead in meetings? That's not very encouraging generally, is it? Uh, but it is all about God wanting a pure church. And, and now we've got Stephen and the story of his martyrdom, i.e. his ending up dying because of his faith. Who wants to preach on that? And especially, do I want to give an appeal at the end, say all those who would really like to, you know, die for their faith, come forward and we'll pray for you. Um, so so it, it, some of these stories are not that easy to speak on. Nonetheless, they are exceedingly important, very, very important indeed, because they're sort of the other side of the story of unmitigated blessing, because lots of the stories of the Acts of the Apostles are all sort of very exciting, and then you have one of these stories which is about reality, because the life that we live in Christ is on the one hand very exhilarating and very encouraging when, as George prophesied this morning, we're very, very aware of the faithfulness and the provision of God. And on the other hand, we sometimes have to walk through some very tricky situations from which we don't seem to get quite the release that we would enjoy. So uh, we're on to the story of Stephen. Uh, who preaches a very long sermon in Acts chapter 7, akin to some other Stevens around here. Anyway, we th- I thought I'd not go there. I'm not even going to actually read all of the sermon. I'm going to read certain parts of it. Um, uh, and this very long sermon um, led to his being stoned. So that's a warning for some of us other Stevens as well. So I will try not to uh, go there this morning. Here we go, Acts chapter 6 and verse 6. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandra, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they couldn't stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place, that's the temple, and against the law. 
For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you're now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at the time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the patriarchs. And Stephen continues to tell that story, the story of how Joseph went down to Egypt and how the Israelites ended up in Egypt. Now, if you look ahead to verse 20, at that time, Moses was born. That's while the Israelites were in Egypt. Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house, When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. And so the story of Moses now continues. Now let's look on to verse 30. After 40 years had passed, that means 40 years after he had actually committed a murder. Um, After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and didn't dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I'll send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they'd rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly, in the desert, with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. And he received living words to pass on to us. And he goes on talking about the story of Israel and how on the one hand they had Moses' word, law, the law of God. On the other hand, They departed from that and they went their own way. And then he picks up the story again uh, about the tabernacle, the tent that was right at the center of God's people in the wilderness. Verse 45. 
Having received the tabernacle or the tent, the place where God's presence was in the wilderness, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people. This is where things start to go from, I was going to say, bad to worse. He's recounted the history, and the history is a testimony enough against the Israelites, but he's now getting prophetic. When you get under a prophetic anointing, you need to watch out, because you sometimes end up saying things that surprise everybody. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. That's Jesus. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who've received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. I've always wondered what it looks like when people gnash their teeth at the speaker. Anyway, I I hope I don't find out too soon. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he'd said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. Well, I've called what I want to say this morning, quite cheerfully, the blood of the martyrs. I couldn't think of a better title simply because this is all about a man who met his death because he stood for Christ. And throughout the centuries, this has been one of the most powerful testimonies consequent, uh, cons- consistently that Christians have had to make that Jesus Christ is worth more than anything else. Jesus Christ is worth more than obedience to man, obedience to rulers, Jesus Christ and following Jesus Christ is worth more than money or career or fame or reputation uh, or comfort. And Jesus Christ is worth more than life itself. He is even worth dying for. And it was the historian Tertullian, early on in the church's history in the second century A.D., who said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, the life that is poured out by the martyrs becomes uh, the foundation from which life springs up and more life springs up in the church. Uh, Many of you will obviously know, at least I hope you will know, I hope everybody here knows that Oxford had its martyrs in 1555. Uh, Two men died for their faith in 1556. 
Another one followed him under the reign of Queen Mary Tudor. Uh, They were men who, although they started off their journey in the Roman Catholic Church, became convinced that there were some uh, deep flaws in the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church concerning the Mass. Uh, And I don't want to go into the rights and wrongs of this and try and sort of get caught up with all of that story, but they were convinced that there were deep flaws in all of this teaching and that, that we found the relationship with God through the foundation of Jesus' death on the cross once and for all. And if we put our faith in that, then we are right with God forever. That was their conviction. And the idea of going over and over and over again, week after weeks, this sort of rehearsal of the death of Jesus was something they felt they could not go along with. And uh, so uh, it came to a point where they were tried They were tried in the church, uh, which is now called the University Church of St. Mary on the High Street in Oxford. If you have never been there, go and look there and follow the story, because that was the scene of the trial of these martyrs. Three of them were tried, Latimer, Cranmer, and Ridley. Uh, It's a long story. Cranmer ended up sort of vacillating about whether he did or didn't believe, and he, you know, when it came to it, he... He played a coward's game and sort of revoked his newfound Protestant faith. And then he couldn't live with himself. And the year after, he he came back and said, no, I stick with the faith that I have found in Jesus Christ, and I'm going to live by that. Um, uh, But the story of the martyrs is a very moving story. And many of you will know that there is a monument to the these uh, martyrs in Broad Street, just opposite Balliol College. And if you have never discovered it, you ought to go and have a look at it. Uh, There's another very famous martyrs memorial, uh, which we have obviously in St. Giles. I I hope I'm sort of, uh, everybody knows this stuff, but um, you can never take anything for granted, so I feel I ought to mention it. There's a marvelous story of talking about the Martyrs Memorial, of course, which is just a spire, a sort of, you know, tower in the middle of the road. Uh, I love this story, um, and I'll tell the funny story, and then I'll go back to the serious story. But uh, the story goes that, um, you know how these guys take groups around, groups of tourists around the city? You know those guys who hold up their umbrellas, you know, and hope that people will follow and all the rest of them and the was one guide who was taking around a group, a, a group of Americans, and here I'm not trying to show any racism at all in what I'm about to say, but a group of Americans who kept asking the silliest questions. Um, and, and this guide was getting exceedingly frustrated with this bunch of people who were asking silly questions everywhere they went. So they got at the end of the, the cultural tour of Oxford to the Martyrs Memorial, Uh, and said, now this is a memorial to the martyrs who lost their lives here in the city of Oxford. Um, This used to be a large church with a big spire on top, but unfortunately it was built on marshland, and over the years it has sunk down into the marshes, and all that is left here now is this spire that sticks up from the ground. But if you go over to those stairs over there in the middle of St. Giles and walk down them, you will find the, uh, you know, the main body of this church uh, underneath the road. So they all troop down, walk down the steps and find themselves, of course, in the public lavatories. (laughs) I love that story. I just think, anyway, it's it's the mischievous side of me. Um, Anyway... Uh, let me just let me just read you a little bit of the story in sort of slightly colourful language of these martyrs. Um, armed dignitaries of Oxford led these two prisoners, Latimer and Ridley, to a ditch near Balliol College. Crowds lined the route to the stake. The first prisoner, Nicholas Ridley, aged 55, until recently Bishop of London, is wearing a black fur gown, a velvet cap, and a pair of slippers. He walks cheerfully to his death. The second prisoner, a former bishop of Worcester and Gloucester, walks behind him, wearing a shabby woolen coat with a frayed cap and handkerchief on his head. 
Are you there? Ridley calls to his, his dear friend. Yes, I'm coming as quickly as I can, replies the 75-year-old Hugh Latimer, affectionately known as Old Father Latimer. At the stake, the two men embrace one another, kneel to pray, and then listen to a 15-minute sermon by a Dr. Smith on, though I give my body to be burnt and have not charity, it profits me nothing. The condemned men had preached that acceptance with God comes through Christ alone who died on the cross once for all to atone for sin. His death makes works of duty and the reoffering of Christ at the Mass unnecessary and blasphemous. Repent and come home to the church and you will save your lives and your souls, thunders the preacher. May we speak, asked Ridley. Only if you renounce your erroneous opinions, replies Dr. Marshall, the Vice-Chancellor. Well, he says, so long as breath is in my body, I will never deny the Lord and his truth. God's will be done to me. Death by burning is now inevitable. Ridley gives clothing and other items to the bystanders. Latimer has nothing to give. Shall I wear my belt, Ridley asks his companion. It will cause you more pain if you keep it. Besides, it will do a poor man good, answers Latimer. Ridley throws his belt into the crowd and prays. I beseech you, Lord, take mercy upon the realm of England and deliver the land from all her enemies. The blacksmith fastens a chain around the waists of both men. The, ex the executioners tie bags of gunpowder around their necks and light a bundle of sticks at their feet. Latimer says, Be of good courage, Master Ridley, and play the man, for we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. As the faggots catch fire, Ridley says loudly, Lord, into your hands I commend my spirit. Lord, receive my spirit. Latimer prays, O Father of heaven, receive my soul. Latimer burns quickly, but Ridley lingers longer because the fire burns badly on his side of the stake. These are powerful stories and that's I suppose deliberately told in the most powerful way possible in 1980 I had the privilege of traveling to China at that time China was only just recovering from the full uh, impact of the river the cultural revolution which started in uh, the late 60s um, and sort of was starting to turn in 1977. And just after that period, China opened up to the West again after a period of being completely closed to the West. And one of the reasons was to try and exterminate all the fires of religion and the faith that people held. And uh, a friend of mine, who was actually the director of Open Doors UK at the time, said to me, uh, Steve, I need to go and uh, do a reconnaissance trip in China. Would you like to come with me? I said, I'll pray about it. Yes, I'll come. It was one of those prayers. It didn't take a lot of praying. Uh, somehow, uh, you know, I'd already had a heart for China and prayed for years for Christians who were suffering uh, from a great deal of oppression, persecution, and, in cases, death in the nation of China for their faith. One night in Hong Kong, this was before we travelled into China, we travelled into China, but it was, would have been imprudent for us actually directly to meet Christians. We did take in several suitcases of Bibles, but we were part of a tour group as we went in for this trip. And so we left these Bibles there, Jeff and I, uh, on, this, uh, on this trip. 
But uh, one night in Hong Kong, we had the privilege of meeting a most remarkable lady. Uh, And uh, her husband had... Was a was a pastor um, and a teacher. He was a teacher by trade, but he was also a pastor. And they led they led a network of many churches. Um, and when the Cultural Revolution came, he was taken off into a labour camp. And the idea was that you take all the leaders of society off into labour camps. You put them into labour camps. And that way you remove the old influential leadership and you can raise up a new proletariat uh, leadership uh, which can be moulded according to the communist uh, principles. So, so her husband had been taken off into a labour camp and sent, spent several years in this labour camp. What they didn't know, the, the authorities at the time, was that she was also seminary trained. So all the pastors and leaders of this group of churches were taken off into a labor camp, but she was, she was sort of left there with a certain amount of freedom. She basically went around all of these groups that they had raised up in a whole network of churches that they were connected with, and in, in every group she trained up and raised up other leaders. She didn't take a place of leadership herself in what was happening in the churches, but she trained up, raised up, and released uh, other leaders. And so all of these churches thrived. This was in the time when God was moving very, very supernaturally. They were meeting underground in homes. I mean underground, I mean in secret, (laughs) in homes. Uh, They would engage in silent singing, uh, so they would say, <laughs> let us sing number 15. They'd take their, uh, you know, actually most of it was done by memory now because they'd thrown away most of their hymn books because it wasn't safe for them to keep them. But they would remember the numbers and they'd remember the words. You can remember the oldies, can't you? It's the ones that you learnt today that you can't remember in the middle of this week. Anyway, um, so, you know, they would say, let's sing number 15. And they would all, you know, sing you know, silent singing was the order of the day. And it was their way of trying to pour out their praise to God in secret. So they would engage in silence. And the one thing they were not allowed to do was to sing in tongues. Because, uh, because people would get carried away. And they'd start doing it out loud. Because once you start singing in tongues, you can't stop, can you? That's what the Chinese Christians knew. Because when the life of the Holy Spirit starts bubbling out, it bubbles out and you, you know, it comes out and it's irrepressible and inextinguishable. And so they, 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 would, they would ban singing in tongues. And, and then in these groups, they, they had a Bible between several groups. They didn't, not everybody had a Bible. The Bibles had all been removed by the authorities and, and, but pages from the Bibles would go round different groups. So you'd get your turn with different pages of the Bible and they'd read the scriptures and people would preach from the word of God. I'll tell you what, they valued their Bibles in China. There is no question about it. And they sent the pages around so that everybody could profit. This dear lady's, uh, elder son, she had four children. And what happened time and time again, I'm, I'm sort of just getting ahead of myself in the story, time and time again, they would be singing or praying or reading the scriptures and somebody stand up and say, break up the meeting, the Red Guard are on their way. And they'd disperse the meeting as fast as possible. Three minutes later, the Red Guard would be there on the doorstep, frustrated because God had protected his people through a word of knowledge, a divine supernatural intervention. This sounds a little bit like Acts of the Apostles stuff, doesn't it? It really was Acts of the Apostles type Christianity. And, um, and her elder son, she had four children, her elder son was beaten to death by the Red Guard uh, under interrogation one day because they were trying to find out who were members of this group that had just been broken up that they knew were meeting in the house. 
and he lost his life. This dear lady, had her son was in a labor camp. Her el- sorry, her, her husband was in labor camp. Her eldest son had died. Was she sad? Not a bit of it. She simply glorified God that they had been counted worthy to bear the name of Jesus and stand for him in immense hardship and immense opposition and immense persecution. They'd had the privilege of standing for Jesus. We said said to her, but this has been immense hardship for you. She said, that's nothing compared with living with the glory of God and being friends with Jesus, God's son. Absolutely nothing. Let me tell you the sting in this tale. We met her two nights on a run, and she she just told a story after story of how God was moving supernaturally to save his people and to intervene in the lives of his people. And let me just say to you, wherever there is great pressure in the church, God is also very present. And one of the things that we need to pray for churches and Christians that are under pressure, and there are many still under pressure in this world, is that God would turn up time and time again, strengthen and encourage his people, cause them to be strong, cause them to have such a vision of Jesus that it's all worth it. We met this dear lady for two nights running while she told us story after story of miraculous intervention of God in the lives of his people. It was one of the richest two evenings I have ever shared in my, ever spent in my life. At the end of which, she said, now, have you got a word from the Lord for our churches in China? I can't tell you how unprepared and humble uh, we felt by that request. She said, we have a good network. We will get the word of the Lord out. And you know what? I believed it. Lord, <laughs> I still can't remember what I shared, but it felt like it dribbled down and, you know, it was just, you know, I thought how precious they view the word of the Lord when they're under pressure, how casually we view the word of the Lord when we live in such comfort. And there are such challenges here. So, let me just try and rehearse this to you, and I'm trying to bring, going to now try and bring uh, Acts chapter 7 into land, if I can, without getting stoned for a sermon of interminable length. Okay, here we go. The story thus far, then, in the Acts of the Apostles is, of course, as you well know, those who've been here over the last few weeks, the Spirit launches the church with this huge outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This was the birth of the church. This was the Uh, rising up of people in the confidence of their God before cowardly, timid, fearful in an upper room then suddenly there's an explosion of life and power and and dynamic and all the rest of it we're going to see the church of God rise up to be all that God wants it to be it is going to take a church that's empowered by the Holy Spirit who had something so remarkable and so surprising happen to them in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on them personally it won't happen by some sort of faith that's in the leaders or in others or what. It has to be us personally who've had something remarkable happen to us in terms of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you have never had that happen in your life, we invite you to stay and get some prayer afterwards because today could be your day for encountering the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This becomes an exhilarating community. They share life together. Uh, they're, they're living together, loving together, walking together. No one ha- has any need. They're helping one another. It's a community of supernatural signs. Actually, over the last few weeks, I've been reading the Acts of the Apostles myself. Um, I have to say, largely because I've got to teach it in a French camp uh, it, it, later on this summer, and I've been reading it again. I, I have been impressed with two things in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. First, this is a sort of supernatural dynamic where uh, where everything is 
is sort of wonderful and chaotic and, and beyond expectation and surprising. And at the same time, the Holy Spirit leads the church through various practical changes, like, for instance, the choosing of deacons, which Angus probably spoke on last week. Um, that's a, a very sort of profound structural thing, but the Holy Spirit is in that as well. You've got this supernatural dimension. You've also got the very practical dimension going on, and we mustn't underestimate either. There are some people in the church, you know, who want, you know, all supernatural, no structure. That won't work because the structures were the thing that released the life of God into more and more situations. Some people just want the structures without all the the, the, the sort of funny stuff that goes on over, over the top, that won't work either because that's just boredom and tedium uh, and it has no life in it. And we need both of those things together. There are supernatural signs and then comes trouble and deliverance because one of the things that happens in the story of the church is trouble and then God moves powerfully in answer to prayer and sets the apostles free and they all praise God. They all get filled with the Spirit and the place where they're meeting sort of, you know, gets shaken all the rest of it. Then comes holiness and healing. The holiness is the Ananias and Sapphira bit. I have a feeling there's a de- deliberate reason, reason, Steve's probably said this, why, why the Ananias and Sapphira story is there because God wants in the foundations of his church holiness. Full stop. And he wants a healing community to be a holy community. And a holy community will become a healing community. Those things go together. Uh, then there's team structures to release life. And now we come, more, we come to more trouble, but no deliverance. Okay? All right. Now, that's one of the classic things. So we see trouble comes and deliverance. Now, more trouble, but no deliverance. There is a fire that God's people sometimes have to walk through. There's a fire that you and I sometimes have to walk through. This is the reality of the Christian life. Now, let me try and just again... um, But this is all part of the church advancing. Okay, the church is advancing. And the church keeps on advancing. One of the questions is, how does the church advance? Well, the church advances, first of all, through the ministry of the apostles which comes to a climax in the death of Stephen, in this story of the Acts. It's like, all of this stuff's been going on in Jerusalem, and then there's Stephen. And this deacon, who becomes a man of the supernatural, and almost apostolic, we could say, because there's an anointing here, as you know, and he's got to be done away with. Right? That leads to persecution, more persecution, Philip going down to Samaria, a mini-revival starting in Samaria, then Peter ending up in the house of Cornelius, and the gospel going to Gentiles, then the church in Antioch, and then as Paul and Barnabas goes out, more apostles, a sort of domino effect going on, but Stephen and his martyrdom is one of those dominoes that's in this story. You can't avoid it. And there's times of blessing and wonderful stuff that goes on, and then times of profound hardship in which we have to walk through those periods and find the grace of God. Note very carefully, Stephen becomes a deacon, and then he becomes an apostle. I just simply want to say this, please note, serving in God's church does not limit you but prepares you for the ministry God has for you. The responsibility that Stephen was given as a Greek speaker was bringing some peace to Greek speakers in the church by making sure they got a fair share of the distribution of food. It wasn't a very glorious ministry. It didn't stop him praying for the sick, seeing people healed, uh, seeing the power of God come down or whatever. And I want to suggest to you that serving in the church is not some sort of dead-end job. (laughs) Oh dear, they've asked me to serve teas and coffees after the meeting. I hate serving tea and coffee. Some like it weak, some like it strong, some like more milk, some like less milk. You know, and they don't even talk to you when they get to the hatch. They're all talking to one another, and 
you know, and it's really a pain in the neck. And what's more, I have to stay late uh, and clear stuff up afterwards and all the rest of it. No, 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 no. That's, well, that is serving in the church, and that's a life of service, but serving can also be a way of blessing people, being cheerful. That might be the only word of encouragement that some people get that morning from the person behind the tea counter. Think about it. And somebody says, oh, I really need this. I've got a sore throat. Say, well, here's a cup of tea. Now, can I pray for you? You could see people healed as well, just like Stephen saw people healed. So serving doesn't limit you, but prepares you for the ministry God's got for you. So the church is advancing. Now, secondly, the church advances through men of character. This man was known, as our story told us, as being a man full of grace Grace and power, not just power. The problem with powerful people is sometimes they don't have very much grace. Stephen had both. Right? He was full of grace and power. He was a man who was obviously full of faith because it said he did great wonders and miraculous signs. He was, it says in chapter 7, full of wisdom and the spirit. And here's my question. Could this be you at work? Yes, Joe. Joe's nodding down here. Well, it's good to have one person nodding. Could this be you at work, full of grace and power, full of wisdom and the Spirit? You could make a difference, just like Stephen made a difference. But such people also arouse jealousy and opposition. Nobody likes a goody-goody. Have you noticed when you're watching films how much easier it is to align yourself with the baddie rather than the goody? Seriously. You know, something we all identify, that just tells us more about ourselves than anything else. But nobody likes the goody-goody because he makes us look bad and feel bad. And so Stephen's here and, uh, you know, but this doesn't deter you. It doesn't deter you for one moment. You're going to continue to do what God's calling you to do and to be who God's calling you to be, and you're not going to hide your light under a bucket, as Jesus said. I've had to face two particularly torrid times when media got hold of things that we were doing in various churches. The first one was in a Baptist church that was coming out of sort of a traditional Baptist thing into full-blooded, charismatic life and worship. And, and uh, it was actually one of our own church members who fed a story to the local press. And the thing about the stories is that they're always half true. They're never all wrong. Right? You can't deny them all. So the truth is that, that Stephen was saying things about... Moses and what Moses had to say. And he was saying things about the temple and the temple not being the only place where God... He was saying some stuff. There is no question about it. There was truth in the accusations that were brought against Stephen. Right? But he still stood for what he was going to be true. When we started the church here in Oxford, we also had a whole raft of other media stories in the local press about OCC being OTT. I'm not afraid of that. I would love us to have very many more stories about OCC being OTT in the power of God and in seeing healing miracles and in being a great, having a great sense of community. Wouldn't you? Yes. Amen. Good. Okay. So the church advances through men of character who are full of grace and power, full of faith, full of wisdom and the spirit, and who are not going to be deterred by accusations or by people telling stories which are partly true. By the way, if you try to defend yourself against those stories, you will spend your life firefighting. It's a waste of time. can't be done. Uh, you know, and what you just need to do is let faithfulness and love and, you know, continuing in the good works of Jesus be enough. And people then see who you really are. There are great stories that go around and get spread, but don't worry about them. The church advances then through men of revelation. 
Of course, I'm talking about through men and women of character and through men and women of revelation. And please don't accuse me of being sexist because I'm not really. It's just a shorthand. Right? The church advances through men of revelation. Right? The charge against Stephen was that he was speaking against Moses and what Moses said in the law. And he was speaking against the temple, which was God's dwelling place. And he was probably saying two things. He was saying, <laughs> Moses said the prophet would come. Who was he talking about? He was talking about Jesus. Okay, so look at Jesus. And he also said, well, <laughs> Jesus said, I'll destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again. He wasn't talking about the temple in Jerusalem. He was talking about his body, which he was going to raise up on the third day. The reality of the presence of God and where God lives is in Jesus. And you meet God in Jesus, not in the temple. He'd seen some things. Stephen could not be deterred from this revelation that he had that Jesus was everything. The law pointed to him. The temple pointed to him. The law wasn't where you needed to go for life, although it was the living words of God, Stephen says in his sermon. And the temple wasn't the only place that you could find God. God was the Lord of heaven and earth, for goodness sake. So his rebuttal in his sermon, oh, this is a precy, by the way, and it's, a, it's the cut-down version. Abraham met God in Mesopotamia. <laughs> that ought, ought to tell you something. You don't need to go to the temple to meet God, because he's the Lord of heaven and earth, and you can meet him anywhere. Moses met him in the desert. So he can be found in the desert as well. Because he's Lord of heaven and earth. Okay. Moses received living words from God, but God's people regularly turn away from them, and that's what you're doing now, because Moses pointed to Jesus. Stephen surveys the Old Testament story because it is important. But the Sanhedrin was stuck there. They were stuck in tradition and they were stuck in the details of the Old Testament. And Stephen wanted to say, hey, but this story now comes to a climax in Jesus. Stephen had got revelation about Jesus. When you and I get revelation of who Jesus is, it makes us impossible characters. We won't be shifted, we won't be moved, we won't go anywhere else where we build our lives around Jesus, we talk about Jesus, we walk with Jesus, we live with Jesus, we pray to Jesus because we've seen that God has come to us in Jesus. He's got a revelation. That's why those Christians in China kept standing. That's why Christians in North Korea today are still standing. That's why Christians in many countries in this world are still standing because they've got a revelation of Jesus, that Jesus is central to life coming to this world. And if we don't understand that there is no life or salvation in any other name but Jesus, we're going to be weak and wishy-washy and, oh, well, it'll all turn out at the end and all the rest of it. Oh, no, no, no. Life comes in Jesus and it's centered on Jesus. And, you know, we want to see people love Jesus and accept Jesus and find Jesus for themselves because there's no life and no salvation anywhere else. That's how the kingdom advances, through men and women who've got it and who can't be shaken from it and who desperately want other people to have the life of Jesus. And fourthly, the church advances through people with heavenly vision. Stephen's concern is to follow the Spirit and obey God's word. That's 51, verses 51 to 53. He says, the problem with you people is, <laughs> you're so stubborn and you've always resisted the Holy Spirit. It's time to move with the Holy Spirit and to follow the Spirit and to obey God's word. And then as all of, you know, mayhem is opening, happening around Stephen, it says in the midst of this he sees 
heaven open and he sees the glory of God. The Son of Man standing at the Father's right hand. In the midst of this battle, he knows who's there and who's with him. Where he's fixed, he's got a heavenly vision. And it's more powerful than anything he's walking through on this earth at this time. Because it's a heavenly vision that fixes him into and roots him into God. And he's spoiled for life. And even as he dies, his heart is to bless and to forgive. Lord, forgive them. Some of us under pressure lose all reason, (laughs) get all angry, twisted, bent out of shape. Stephen stays right in shape. Lord, forgive them. They don't understand. He's got a heavenly vision. I want to suggest to you that the church is going to advance in the UK when there are men and women like Stephen, whether we have to die or not, but through men and women of character, men and women of revelation, and men and women who have a heavenly vision, who understand where their life is fixed. And these things are more important than our lives our money, our careers, our comfort. Living for Jesus is much more important than that. I think of Jan White, who, Dr. Jan White was part of our church in North Whitney, mid 1980s, gave up a comfortable GP job. And she'd probably have liked the pension that they're getting and all the rest of it now, I guess. (laughs) But she gave it all up to go to Uganda, started various clinics, started clinics in Kenya, established a hospice in Uganda, uh, where she currently lives, uh, near Mbali. Uh, Has vision to build a large clinic. She's She's going to live there. She's going to die there. It's worth far more than a doctor's salary or pension. Doing good to God's people, showing the love. She's just got, she's just got ordained as an Anglican. As an Anglican vicar, which is a little bit odd for some of us community church people. She's one of us, you understand. But I'll tell you why she's done it. She grew up in an Anglican church until the age of 17. And I'm not pointing the finger at Anglican churches. I mean, please don't hear that. But, you know, this could have been any dead church. And there are tons of lively Anglican churches who we love, obviously. But she grew up in an Anglican church. She never once heard about Jesus and that Jesus was the one who died to save her. Never once. She left home. She went to London, trained as a doctor, uh, went through all sorts of searching and at 23 found Jesus and it transformed her life. And uh, she, she was challenged that God would open doors for her if she became an Anglican clergy person. And so she asked us all what we thought. We said, hey, if you feel that's what God's saying, do it. And she said, I just don't want other people to grow up in the Anglican church and not to hear the story of Jesus. Don't you love that? A few sort of religious things to overcome here and there, but the important thing is everything gets centered around Jesus.